0: So what
1: are we talking about today, Maxine? We are talking about how hard it is to write in a panoramic. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Shakespeare Who podcast hosted by Maxine Sibihuana and Jill
0: Damatak-Fotter. We talk about making our own canon through books we read and words we write alongside special guests. <laughs>
1: and like just general kind of mental health while writing and reading especially with all the the nonsense Mm. that's been going on around the world it's very difficult i know everyone thought that oh yeah we're gonna be writing at home and chilling at home because (laughs) we're like working from home and we can write the next novel no that's not how our brains work that's not how i've been working (laughs) if there's any work that's been done yeah
0: this past year has been a terrible year for writing. Like oh. I, it's funny because I think I went into 2020 kind of just on cruise control with my writing. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I just felt really good and was just kind of churning out words. Mm-hmm. And then the pandemic hit and it feels like all of my brain's energy went towards being really anxious. Like I have, like I'm pretty anxious anyway, but mm-hmm. just being really anxious about what's gonna happen next. Mm. And that's just continued. What's going to happen next? We don't know. And then summer 2020 came along, which was just awful in terms of, you know, well, first of all, white people finally coming around to the idea that racism exists and that's how black violence exists. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah, Black Lives Matter. Brand new thought. (laughs) It's only been around for, you know, 500 years. Exactly. Um, Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. And that's that's just been its own kind of upheaval as well yeah here we are 2021 which is like a remix of last year but how's it been for you
1: yeah it's (laughs) it's just been very difficult i think because i came into 2020 as well um thinking okay you know we've just done one year of our master's course like we've kind of you know we're coming into like the last kind of final hurdle of our course now. And I thought that we would be in a, in a very different space as to where we were last year, but we're exactly the same. And I think the lack of movement is just very difficult for me because I'm like, okay, if I'm constantly stationary, I don't have very many life experiences that I feel like I could put into my writing. And mm. It's just hard to then make a story move when you yourself are not moving. And then we're supposed to kind of um, pretend that everything is okay and that everyone and like not thousands of people aren't dying every single day. And, and there's not Mm. increased anti-Asian hate and there's no increased anti-black hate. And then there's just, there's so much that the British government in particular is doing wrong at the moment in the way that there's such a lack of protection of our livelihoods that i i feel like mm. there's you're also anxious about what's going to happen next but you're also like okay it, in a very serious situation i cannot trust my government to do anything to actually protect people like millions of people have died because of their kind of a lack of competence and so many like families have been affected and i i just I don't know how to compartmentalize the way that people normally are like, yeah, you know, people are dying in Syria, but I'm going to go to Cancun. You know, (laughs) it's never been, Mm. (laughs) that's never really been the kind of my MO. I always feel kind of the weight, which I shouldn't really, but I always feel the weight of the world on my shoulders. And I, I can't write in a, in a situation where I feel like nothing is being done. Um, I try, uh, but I, there's, it's honestly like my brain is just like I just need to survive this pandemic. I haven't written a poem in like Aww. seven months, so we will see oh, if no. I can <laughs> if I can try to do that. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I I think it's just trying to learn a new normal is is hard for a writer because you're just it's so insular, you know. It's like a very isolating kind of practice you can't really do teamwork writing um as much as people think yeah. that you can collaborate in that way it's not really that kind of pastime so I don't yeah. know how I don't know how people are doing it if I'm honest with you like because I'm working with writers obviously for work and I don't know how they're writing like 90,000 word things because I'm like I do I'm jealous honestly I wish that I could be like you and just kind of sit down and work it all out but then it wouldn't be authentic to me as a writer to just kind of write whatever and see what happens.
0: Yeah. And it's so many factors and it varies and it depends on kind of where everyone is in life. And even mm-hmm. like when you were talking about when you were talking just now about um, how you can't write unless you feel like you're moving, your writing can't move. Like I, I just started thinking about those Myers-Briggs tests we took <laughs> like a year and a half ago. And I think you tested as an extrovert and mm-hmm. I tested as an introvert. So for you, you kind of, you absorb the world around you, and then you transfigure that into your writing. Um, and yeah. that's, that's just how you work. Um, what I've found interesting was that I think for the initial part of the pandemic, like the first half of of 2020, I was okay, um, just because I am used to just never leaving home and just being quite happy being in this little corner and just writing yeah, or just thinking about things or looking out the window. And that's like enough for me. Other people, unless I really like you are exhausting, (laughs) you know, like interactions larger than four people leave me kind of like laid out for a week (laughs) after. Right. But what I found was interesting was it kind of really started getting to me by like autumn of last year I took a long break just from reading anything even vaguely literary. Um, when I say long break, I mean like all of last year. Yeah. <laughs> like I just didn't. I, I've i read so far like 22 thrillers. I counted this morning. <laughs> Which is like, I haven't done that since middle school. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, I like- was like, this is about as much as I can do. <laughs> <laughs> and for the writing part, I th- and especially because I've been in the middle of, you know, um, writing out uh, a book proposal for this memoir that I'm writing, um, all of that has been, I mean, it's been thrilling on the one hand, but uh, on the other hand, it's, it's taken like three times the amount of effort than I think it normally would, mm-hmm. um, where I would find myself kind of, laboring over a paragraph for like an entire day it's just harder to put the thoughts together it feels almost like we're in a centrifuge and we're trying to like peel ourselves off the wall but what have you been reading
1: this is a good question let me look at my pile on my on the side of the bed that i've been (laughs) neglecting (laughs) so i've been trying to read like something that will enrich my mind or at least get me creatively moving but it's not really been working but i started reading reading um the mermaid of black conch by monique roffey and it's about this sailor that falls in love with a mermaid who she was so beautiful that the other wives in the village were jealous and they cursed her into being a mermaid um and that kind of sold it for <gasps> me in the blurb. but I was like, yeah, that sounds really petty and I, I love this. I'm going to watch this. I'm going
0: to read Ooh. this. It's going to be great. It's like the wide Sargasso Sea for The Little Mermaid.
1: And she's a really good writer. She, she got the, the Costa Book Award for this book, which was pretty cool. And the cover is ridiculous. I love it. It's got a mermaid on it. Uh, <laughs> which is another reason why I got the book was because it has a mermaid on it. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I like mermaids. Those are cool. I got to look this up now. And she's like singing sea shanties. She's singing like sea shanties. And that's what like the sailor is attracted to. And but yeah, I was really excited about it as well. That is
0: a stunning um, cover.
1: It is. Oh, like, isn't it just great? It's just great. I love it.
0: (laughs) I'm reading a book you sent me. Oh, yay. Oh, the one I stole from the fancy shelf. Oh, I'm so happy. (laughs) 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 Okay, so for a bit of background, for anyone who's new, Maxine used to work at HarperCollins, and she's now at Penguin Random House um, as part of the editorial team there. But before she left, she decided that she would send me some books, and she sent me this amazing um, thriller book called The Plotters by Unsu Kim, and it is translated from Korean, and the book is set in Seoul. And it's kind of like a thriller. It's kind of like very Scandi noir. And um, it follows the path of this guy who's basically like an assassin. And it's like an alternate vision of soul where there's like guilds of assassins competing for dominance. It's like totally my vibe. I love it. (laughs) So I'm so glad you sent it to me. Um, I've just been like chewing over the first chapter, which I read twice because... I don't know. The first chapter is really rich and um, it's very descriptive. And, you know, it could have just been like, oh, he shows up at this person's house and kills them. But no, it lingers for a while. And so I thought that was interesting. Mm. Um, So, yeah, that's what I'm reading at the moment. Um, And it's a little bit more, it's a lot more literary than the thrillers I've been reading, which have usually been like closed room murder mysteries. (laughs) So the one where this like the like, husband this always is a does step it up. it's always the husband it's what always the, the ah! husband
1: <laughs> yeah and I, I stole the, the very fancy cover for Jill there's like a like a limited edition cover but oh, I think there's only 100 copies cover. that have that cover and I was like I'm just gonna take it because I'm leaving now what? <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> but yeah it's it's been funny it's been like really weird trying to read and write and mm. like so we went into 2020 with you thinking you were going to write one thing for our master's dissertation yeah and then you've just recently pivoted so can you tell us why you did that and how you arrived at that decision and how it's going
1: yeah um so i thought i'd have a, a lot more time in physical libraries because um, i do a lot of research before i actually get into like writing mode i need to read i need to just like read like journals, archives, all that kind of stuff. And especially since I set things in times where I was not alive. (laughs) So I need to read as much as possible. (laughs) Like what the 80s? Who is she? I've never seen her before in my life. Um, (laughs) I was writing a short story collection and it was set in different cities around um, East Africa, around their different points of independence. and because mm. i need to kind of learn more about the sort of like local color of the place while it was going through the, mm. that kind of tumultuous time i feel like it's not true to myself or to my characters if i kind of write a place that i just kind of imagine and then people of my demographic read it and they're like mm, sorry that's not what happened like that's not what that's not what that wouldn't have been accurate to okay portray
0: okay
1: um and I thought I'd be able to, like, go back and forth to Uganda because that was the plan, to, like, go back and forth and actually visit archives and see people and speak to elders and, and things like that. And I couldn't do that. Um, wow. And, yeah, because, like I was saying, I needed a lot of movement and there was just there was zero movement for that one. So I felt like, let me just put that idea on the back burner. I'll still do it one day when I actually have the chance to go and visit these things. But right now, this is not the time. So instead, yeah. I kind of removed sort of time as a and like actual physical time you know historical time as a factor from my writing and decided to do something yeah. completely bonkers instead of being like more kind of sociopolitical Tell now us. and now i'm writing kind of like a satirical horror novella <laughs> um Oof. because i just feel like the way i've just noticed the way women have been treated just non-binary people have been treated in this mm. really tumultuous time. Like it's just such a, it's very performative the way people feel like they protect women when actually they don't. And especially in, in Ugandan culture, mm-hmm. it's, I found it very hypocritical. I find, I find Ugandan culture, like social culture, just very hypocritical all over the place. Um, And I was like, you know what, this is a chance for me to explore that. And, and I feel like it's easier now because I can make everything up more or less. It's a lot easier to write yeah. now than it was before where I was just like, I have no idea what I'm doing or what's happening and I don't know how to check this. Mm. And, um, I think also, even though I love our course, um, our teachers are not sort of equipped to, (laughs) to help me with African literature kind of texts. And so a lot of it was research that I was doing myself. Um, and that's quite difficult. Whereas I feel like if I'm just kind of writing something that is sort of easier to digest in terms of the concept, it's a lot easier for them to, to support me. Um, so that's yeah. kind of why I chose to to change my idea. Um, very close to well, that's amazing. A lot closer to our deadline than I would have liked to do it. But yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can do it. I think you're the kind of writer who, once you get going, that's You can be quite prolific. Your writing has become a sort of escape pod for you, right? So the initial mm-hmm. idea that you were hoping to pursue for the dissertation was very much grounded in reality. Right. It's Mm -hmm. like a realist set of stories. And when reality is as heavy as it has been for the past year, it's like a little bit too much to continue having to engage with reality and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of putting that extra burden onto your back um, as a black woman in 2020. Mm, and 2021 mm -mm, mm -mm, it's just mm -mm. it's it's a lot so i can totally understand why you've decided to go this kind of speculative horror way and that's just that's genius um (laughs) and i think what what you were just saying about um about our our professors not necessarily being equipped to deal with stories from our our traditions yeah as as a black woman as an asian woman I totally understand that. And it actually reminds me, I'm just going to pull it up on my phone, of something I was listening to this morning. And it's a talk that um, Ocean Vuong was in, I think, a few years ago. And he basically says this, and it's a paraphrase, but I'm going to read it. And I think this applies not just to Asian Americans, by the way. So, So wherever you hear Asian American, you can probably insert just any of us who has ever had to be subservient to whiteness and the West, right? So this is what he says. When it comes Mm. to Asian American innovation and agency, we are often legible when we are at service to larger structures and art, often Eurocentric ones. But when it comes to your own thinking, your own creation, you will not be legible. You will be inconceivable. As an Asian-American, when you dare to have your own agency, your own dreams, when you no longer become the instrument, the empty vessel of larger pre-made art, you will be called pretentious. You will be called unrestrained. They will not be ready for your mind when it creates its own thing. If you are going to be an Asian-American artist, be prepared to be unfathomable. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You should do it. But be prepared, expect it, and even more so, why not? He's saying all of this, like, extemporaneously, by the way. Like, it takes me 10 years to think like this. I love him. (laughs) I know. I love him so much. Okay, just to continue. He's almost done. Um, Why not be as ambitious as you want to be? Why not be pretentious? What is pretentious but to have the pretense, the assumption that you belong here? Be prepared to be inconceivable and be prepared to innovate beyond that because we need you and we are ready for you.
1: Uh, that's really poignant, in, especially with what you're writing at the moment because I feel like we've had conversations where people have said things like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I understand your writing. It's not been the first time. It's been like a couple of, of, of pieces that you've had where I've read them and I feel like, you're being as clear as you c- could possibly be given the fact that you're setting it in, in a world that we may not be used to. I think that's quite poignant that he says that because I, I feel like there's actually like direct examples of people just being like, mm, do I really get that? And it's like, well, if you don't get it, that's not really my problem. Uh, <laughs> it's not our <laughs> problem to kind of make ourselves more clear to you. Yeah. You changed your idea as well. Cause you, before you were writing a novel and now you're, obviously writing a, a memoir instead. So do you want to talk about why you changed your idea I for that? I think I just
0: decided that the novel wasn't ready. Like I wasn't ready to write it. Like I'll probably mm-hmm. come back to that idea when I'm 80. <laughs> <laughs> just because I feel like it needs that amount of life experience to be done well. So mm-hmm. essentially that was a magical realist novel about a family of immigrants in New York. I started writing this um, this food memoir and felt like it was something I needed to do like as a kind of catharsis Um, and yeah Mm -hmm. it's kind of helped me escape um, the past year a little bit because I got to just think about culture and family and history my own past it's something that I've tended to ignore as a form of survival Um, but now it's kind of ironic that looking into my past is my current form of surviving the present. Mm. But again, I ran into difficulties writing um, for January and February, and I've actually taken the past two weeks off from writing at all because just the pandemic in general, the rise in anti-Asian violence and worrying about Mm. my parents who are in the U S and like lots of parents, they don't want their kids to worry so they'll tell you everything's fine. And then they'll tell you six months later that their tires have been slashed several <sighs> times. But, you know, it's fine now. It's oh, fine no. now. Don't worry about it. I'm like, I'm like, hang on. Someone walked up to your driveway, which is private property, and slashed the tires of your cars with a f- fucking oh. knife. Yeah. Like someone was on our, my yeah. parents' property with a knife. When you think of it that way, Mm. it's just, it's really hard. Mm. It's hard to focus. That person's going to hell. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure he did that to my parents because his life's already hell. So I hope his next life is (laughs) like even (laughs) worse.
1: It's really stressful. It's like when, when my brother was living in the US and things were happening mm. and like he had run-ins with the police as well and things like that. And I was just like, uh. <laughs> like I was like, I just need you to come As a student home. at
0: UPenn. Not that you need to be a student at UPenn to be treated with, you know, basic human rights and respect, mm-hmm. but like, because mm-hmm. he was there, know. what, around the time of Trayvon and...
1: He was there around the time of loads of, like, there was you know, there was, like, a... It was, like, someone every year that was just getting... Yeah. He was there around... He was there between uh, 2012 and, like, 2017. Yeah. So, like, all, like, the kind of big ones, like Eric Gardner and all that kind of stuff, yeah. all of that was happening while he was there. And then yeah. he had his own experiences with law enforcement. And I was like, oh, my God, I just... and now now he's here and i i i mean it's not any better here but at least i i feel a lot closer to the situation whereas when he was there i just i didn't know there's time zones so you can't really contact someone immediately when something happens and it's just Mm. i feel for you and your parents because obviously that's where their their house roots are so that's where they live and like someone for someone to go to someone's home and slash their tires because of racism is just something that's just completely I mean I know it's something that happens but it's still just it's just it just doesn't make logical sense to a person I I try and apply logic I try and am like okay this person doesn't like me because yeah I'm black like it, it doesn't make sense <laughs> this person thinks that because I'm
0: Asian I somehow have a link to like I'm the, actually not the surprised that the rise in anti-Asian hate and hate crimes in the UK isn't being discussed because the UK mm. is unable to even process the fact that they started slavery um you talk <laughs> about how they ended it and it's like you started it Hello. Um, And things like uh, the Windrush generation, police who are doing anti-black activities all the time. Like this is Mm -hmm. this is something that the UK struggled with. There is this just denial, denial. Mm. And obviously that comes into play with the racism report. So I'm I'm not surprised that the rise in anti-Asian hate is not being acknowledged here at all. Yeah. Which, when we're looking at like purely from a statistical standpoint, has risen uh-huh. across the country by 300 percent, according to the Met Police. <sighs> in June of 2020 alone, uh, London experienced 394 reported hate crimes. That's according to Jeez. an article by Angela Hui in, in Vice, I believe. Yeah, Gross. But
1: apparently there's no institutional racism in this country, according to that report. So, yeah, I just I think there's an extra layer of difficulty that people of color are facing during the pandemic because it's just everything is so heightened. Um, Mm -hmm. And we really because we're at home and, you know, there's nothing else that we're doing. We're kind of really facing these horrible horrific things that are happening to our communities like really head on and they're in our faces all the time and there's no sort of sort of break from them mm. and i think yeah that's just an added layer of oh yeah of just difficulty that it, i don't know how i think that's probably how people <laughs> have been writing a lot easier than we have <laughs> because um there's <laughs> maybe they don't have to deal with with what our demographics are dealing with at the moment um and I think there's been a yeah. there's been a rise in 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 writing about the racial kind of experiences, which I particularly don't like to read, because I feel like if I'm experiencing no. it, I really don't want to read about it. I don't yeah. want to read about it. I just. I don't. mean, we don't need to um, read about it. I feel like that's what people expect of of, yeah. of black and Asian writers is to be like, yeah, and, and this bad thing happened to me, and now I need to write. And no, I, I don't really want to like c- commoditize my my trauma for your for your reading pleasure. Yeah. I'd rather just write what I want to write. And yeah, I guess yeah. I guess yeah, this is it's just been a very Twilight Zone kind of episode way that we're living <laughs> at the moment it yeah. makes me feel like i'm in a jo- jordan peele movie <laughs> like that's how i feel i'm <laughs> constantly in a jordan peele movie the whole world <laughs> is the
0: sunken place oh mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i think one of the things we wanted to talk about in this episode as well was kind of our our mental and emotional health um especially because as writers as creatives as artists we already have a heightened sensitivity to the world around us and are are much more affected by everything that's happening and are much more um, responsive to what's happening so it's not even just that we're affected by it we also respond in a different way like in a much more heightened way than say my husband's a data scientist and he just kind of lives in his own like ones and zeros bubble which is great for him He's also a white man, which is great for him. But, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to feel, to not feel that way when you basically feel like, you know, like a, an, a medium for osmosis, if you will. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd like to talk about that, how you have managed or not managed. And same with me, like my own, my own mental and emotional health, right? Like I have depression and I have, I tend to get very depressive, especially when things aren't going well. And I, I just have generalized anxiety like all the time. Like I have clinical depression as
1: well. Um, so it, it's, it is worse because it's se- I, in like the seasons, but generally all year round is just kind of like a, like a thing that I deal with. Um, mm. some days are harder than others, but I feel like it's been, I've been a lot kinder to myself actually, um, because of the pandemic where if I don't feel like doing something, I just don't do it. Um. I feel like I had a lot of pressure before to keep going when I didn't really want to keep going. Um, mm. Or like, you know, when you're going to work every day or where you have to kind of go to uni and that kind of thing. I felt like I had to just kind of keep chugging along, but because we're, we're all just kind of stationary, I feel like, okay, well, if we're all stationary, then that means that I can be stationary too. And I can just kind of live my life how i see fit Um, and so a lot of writing just hasn't happened because before i used to try and write to help me through my depressive episodes but i think i've just been so low i want to just be i want to think of writing as something that is that i can do when i'm happy and not just something that i i do to get through a day um and so a lot of the time like i said i haven't written a poem in like seven months because i just i haven't been in a space where i feel like yeah i could write something that is experimental Mm -hmm. and weird and like the way that i usually like to express myself creatively because i just i just don't have it in me at the moment and i feel like that's okay um I have anxiety as well and like just just the not knowing is really not working well with my spirit so I feel like again I just try not to yeah try not to force myself to do anything I I don't want to do so I wake up when I want I I go to bed when I want I eat what I want and if it's trash Mm. well it's trash if I'm watching trash it's trash it's fine if I'm reading trash it's trash it's fine as long as I feel like I'm I'm being kind to myself and I'm not forcing myself to be this hyper-productive kind of entrepreneurial kind of person that everyone kind of expects you yeah, to be a cog in I, the capitalist I, machine mm-hmm. and i think especially for a writer because you you are your brand so to speak and we're living in a world where everything is just sort of even on social media even if you're not doing anything you still it's still a kind of a brand of yourself like everyone has mm. their own kind of personal brands and <clears throat> It's a very capitalist way of of thinking and and being. And that's not really how I approach my writing. Um, I feel like my writing can be quite political. It does deal with a lot of like social sociological issues. And I I can't use that as sort of like a brand kind of like, yeah, I'm going to do seven hours of work every day and it's going to be great. That's just it's just it's not. It's quite icky to me. I feel like you're the same. I feel like that's just not who we are as writers. Obviously, closer to July 1st, there's, that's going to change. Because
0: when our dissertation that, is due.
1: <laughs> because I can, I can just, I see myself in June pulling all-nighters. And that's that's just the, the life I've accepted for myself. But right now, it's just, it's not happening. And I'm okay with that. What about you?
0: Yeah. I, and I think that's a good idea anyway, because it'll be, you know, you'll have the longer days. You know, we we need sunlight and vitamin D we'll have more of that you know Mm. um, that will help I think but I've basically been doing what you've been doing Um, like uh, I think I went from even just things like exercising like when people are like oh to, to feel better about being in a pandemic you know you should exercise and I'm like I don't want to I hate exercising like no so this is the fattest I've ever been It's fine, you know, everything I wear stretches and is like loose and made of cotton. My jumper currently says plus size brain. (laughs) Um, And uh, that's, that's just to me, that's just me taking care of myself and kind of just being it's it's a physical manifestation of being softer with myself. And yeah, if I don't want to write for two weeks because staring at the cursor feels like a gauntlet or a challenge. I don't do it um, because nothing good comes out anyway. And I know there are writers who are of the belief of like, oh, you just, you have to write 500 words a day, a thousand words a day. Even if it's not good, at least you've done it and you can work on it the next day. But I don't, I don't write like that. I I respect the people who do. Um, Good for you. Um, That's very, uh, (laughs) very kind of Germanic kind of raw. Um, But I I can't (laughs) do that. I tried that. I tried that over a year ago when I was trying to do this fiction novel. Um, And that's probably why it wasn't very good, because I was trying to just write a certain amount of words each day and mistook that for quality. Um, And I think... Uh, like zooming out to the broader world that probably applies with everything else. Right. Like just this whole idea of everyone having to work a certain number of hours each day. And that's called productivity. So yeah. Yeah. I had like a good writing day before I,
1: before, before our workshop, our most Mm. recent workshop, Mm. I was like, yeah, let me like redo my like first chapter and like add things. And yeah, I feel great. And then since then I just kind of look at it and I'm like, Oh, (laughs) I don't want to do anymore (laughs) (laughs) but yeah a lot of my writing comes out like in in big like big bursts but in short periods of time um And some people find that very haphazard, like my my partner, she's just like, "Um, (laughs) that's just not really how you're supposed to be doing things. I'm like, listen, (laughs) this is how it works.
0: This is how it's been working. (laughs) Oh, There's just so many different ways, right? Like some people approach their writing like they're architects and engineers, you know, Mm. like they kind of, they have this whole sort of thing planned out and just they, they think about it for a long time and then they work on it methodically and that's just how their brain works whereas I'm finding I'm more like a really sleepy Jackson Pollock you know just kind of <laughs> <just> yeah <like laughs> just throw a little paint over here <laughs> okay I'm gonna go away now <laughs> narcoleptic Jackson Pollock. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, it's fine. It's, and, and you know, I, I like what I come up with when I have those periods of inspiration. And like you, it's a nice burst that kind of like, if I have that good burst of inspiration, I can get like 2,500 words done in one sitting, mm. you mm. know, and cull it back to a good 2000. And it's I'm happy with that. You know, I don't need to go back and fix that again. Like that's the other thing. I, I I don't, I don't necessarily tinker for ages with something. Me too. I I feel like sometimes I should. I
1: feel bad, cause like sometimes I write something and I'm like, yeah, no, no, that's done. I'm not gonna do anything to it again. And then some people are like, yeah, I've been working on this like chapter for like seven months. I I I I, I feel for you, wow. but maybe you should just move. Yeah. Like I talked to some of the people in our course who've been like working on like a single part section of their work for like ages and i guess it works for them but like for me i'm just kind of like "Mm, i i just i don't want to look back i want to keep moving forward yeah it would be better for the creative industries as well if if we're out of that weird capitalist business model yeah then people get paid fairly and that's that's what the whole point is for your art to have value regardless of whether or not someone random thinks that you have value um So I'm hoping that we get to a point where we're creating business models like that.
0: Going through this like weird three month process of trying to sell this book proposal is just realizing that there should probably be some kind of like minimum, not even wage, just like minimum payment for buying an author's work. Because you're not buying a book. Uh, You're buying like years of someone's work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that, that's the it's tricky so thing, depressing right? and it's like you know I, I had one of the offers I got I, I'm not even like mad because it's not even the editor it's it's the publishing house that decided that they were valuing you know my two years of prospective work for them at you know 15,000 pounds or dollars sorry. So if you break that down into two years of work, what is that? That's seven and a half thousand dollars salary per year. And then there's the agent's cut that comes out of that. And then what am I living on each year? Six thousand dollars. Convert that to sterling. Five thousand pounds a year. What am I going to do? Like I'd have to take on, you know, another full time job to continue doing that. And that's while having to conform to got, like deadlines to produce uh, a book and that's mm-hmm. that just doesn't seem fair for writers and i think there there has to be something that changes in terms of how publishers view the work that we do and to kind of think about it as giving us a living wage basically right so like while i'm thrilled with how i've done with with the book that i've just signed Um, When I break it down, when I break it down into the two years of work I'll be doing for them, possibly three when you add in like promoting the book, that's just a basic living wage. It's not, you know, it's not as glamorous as it sounds. It's just that's my that's like a salary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I I completely
1: agree. You know, there's I've seen some advances that are crazy and It's because they, if somebody has like a big following, they get more of an advance. If somebody has more Mm. connections, they get more of an advance. And it's like, I want, I want to hold publishing accountable to the, to what they've committed to do in terms of finding writers from different backgrounds and actually giving them a fair chance at being full-time writers. And you, you, you can't do that if like my advance is like 7,000 pounds. Yeah. Like, oh my God, you know you know you can't and there are some advances that are that low and you know yeah. sometimes it's because the, the the imprint itself like may not have the publishing house may not have like the money to throw at the yeah. at the person and that's as much as they can give and that's that's not you know their fault per se but if you're giving me a seven pound advance yeah. and then let's say your marketing team does not do a good job of marketing me because they don't know how to market a person mm. like you know, who may not be heteronormative Mm. and then is also black or brown, then Mm. I lose out on sales and then I don't even get the royalties. So like, it just, it it just seems very short sighted to me. Um, Mm. it seems like you, you're, you are making money off of like my work and you're not exactly giving me my fair dues when it comes to making money off my work there's so many people that they try and like put them in weird writing contracts where they just get an advance and no royalties royalties. what yeah if i as an editor came up with an idea and it's my intellectual property i then go and find a writer to write this book even if it's it's basically their work. Like they don't get the um, royalties. We directly get the royalties.
0: That's fucked up. hmm Oh, my God. So what do you take from this? These are the <laughs> things that 2020 and 21 has given us so far. It's kind of it's given yeah. us so much time to just sit around and go, this is fucked up. This is fucked up. So is that. And so is yeah. this. Um, and, you know, stage two is like, okay, now what are we going to do?
1: I hope if anyone listens to this episode, they try and, you know, are a little softer towards writers in this time, but also a little bit more um, forthcoming with the whole process and more transparent about the money that is on the table. And we're actually giving them a fair amount of money Like we're not just like, oh, here's £5,000, write a book, you know? How do we wrap up this episode, by the way? We're wrapping up this episode by saying that Jill has a six-figure book deal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like we have to have some kind of theme. Like we began it talking about the pandemic with our reading and our writing, like the health of our like our mental and emotional states, our mental health. We've talked about like the world in general and how we're coping with with capitalism um and and its relationship to the pandemic um what should be our takeaway for this like we've talked about how how to be kind to ourselves and how to be softer with ourselves um don't be racist (laughs)
1: um (laughs) don't be racist be nice to people um employers pay your workers Um, and when jill's book is out buy it
0: (laughs) you're hilarious
1: i'm gonna buy like 10 (laughs) copies i hope you know i'm so ready
0: (laughs) thanks um i don't
1: know read a lot of trash books exactly oh yeah and watch trash um for those of you who partake in 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 reality tv like i do um the most recent season of real housewives of Atlanta has been particularly
0: salacious if you'd like to watch it so just to conclude we also didn't talk about the fact that you have a new job you're not at HarperCollins anymore. no oh yeah because we haven't recorded you're in now. a while
1: oh my gosh yes i'm at penguin random house y'all <laughs> it's same shit different table <laughs> uh- <laughs>
0: different linens still white
1: yeah still white um it's good in in many ways I feel like I have a lot more editorial like experience in this one and I get to like you know pitch a lot more books so if you guys have books and agents and even if you don't have agents we can place you with agents just send things to me I'm happy to read things and I'd rather read than do admin so send things to me please because admin is boring yes if you've been (laughs) doing
0: a lot of writing in the pandemic first of all good for you second send it over to Maxine yes thanks for tuning in everybody
1: Thank you. I hope you're all a lot happier
0: than we are. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of the Shakespeare Who podcast. Join us next time for more chat on making our own canon.
1: Subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. This episode is produced and edited by Jill Damatak-Futter and Maxine Sibihuana.